Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. Thank you guys for tuning in as always. I want to talk a little bit about Siri for a minute. There is a lot of talk out of Washington lately about the gains our military has made against ISIS in Syria. And while that is true, that we've taken back a lot of territory from ISIS, the reality is the war in Syria is getting worse. If you're a civilian living on the ground there, you are getting bombed by the regime day in and day out. You are caught in fighting between regime forces and rebel forces. It is a horrific situation. And the way we know about how bad the situation is is brave journalists and photographers that go in and document what's happening. That is a role my guest today is very familiar with. His name is Jonathan Alpery. He has documented conflict zones across the planet. And in our interview today and in his book, he talks about what it was like to get kidnapped by rebel forces for 82 days in Syria. It is a harrowing story. He talks about what it was like being held by these people, how he got out, and what he has done upon returning home to try to help others who are taken captive like he was. I think you'll enjoy the interview, and thanks again for tuning in. My guest today is Jonathan Alpri. He's a photojournalist and author who has shot photos in at least nine conflict zones. His book, The Shattered Lens, A War Photographer's True Story of Captivity and Survival in Syria, recounts the 81 days he spent in Syrian rebel captivity in 2013. Uh, Jonathan, thank you so much for being on the show and joining me today. Thank you. Okay, so you were on your third assignment in Syria in 2013 when suddenly you found yourself handcuffed, blindfolded, beaten and held captive for nearly three months by a group of Syrian rebels. You had reported from a whole bunch of dangerous places before. How did this trip take such a disturbing turn with you being kidnapped by these individuals? Well, um, first to answer this question, it's important to understand that different conflicts have different kinds of uh, danger levels. Mm -hmm. And uh, Syria was at a very high level in terms of the possibilities of getting killed or kidnapped. And the reason is because this was a very hotly contested, uh, still is a very hotly contested conflict where you have multiple uh, players involved, foreign and domestic uh, players. And uh, when you have these kinds of conflicts, they are desperate in some fashion, all rules are out. And therefore, kidnappings are a good way to fund your rebel group or mm-hmm. to fund whatever um, agenda you might have. Yeah. So... Speaking to the risk, so, I mean, you were very honest in the book. You went in this pretty clear-eyed about the risks. Uh, you write about going to a lecture by a, a very experienced war reporter named Sebastian Younger and asking him, hey, what do you think about going to Syria? And he said, point blank, it's just too dangerous there now. Why did you think it was important to go anyway and document what was happening when, you know, in particular, when you also discuss how, like, cell phone cameras and the availability of video has changed the way conflict zones are, are documented and photographed? It's an interesting question. Covering the war in Syria was, and I, for, I can testify that for most of us who went in to cover it, was also a personal challenge. Mm-hmm. Because when you're a war reporter, you're also kind of like an athlete. You want to expand the envelope as much as you can and see where your threshold is in terms of fear that you might have or how much how close you want to get to death and basically look at it in the eyes and then decide whether or not this is for you as a profession or uh, you should 
be covering this war, you shouldn't. And Syria was a good catalyst for that because I was able to gradually cover from wars are worse and worse and worse. And even when you're inside a conflict zone, then you can decide whether or not you want to go closer to the fighting or you don't, or you want to go to an area that's safer or more dangerous. And Syria was a, a very good teaching experience for that. And this war was actually uh, my 12th war. And wow. I've covered 13 so f uh, in total. And uh, Syria was definitely one of the, the most dangerous uh, assignments I've ever had to cover. And that's something you talk about in the book, which is that, you know, the, the sort of the best photos that come from a conflict zone are, the, are closer and closer and closer to the front. You know, sort of soldiers actually in action. How do you determine mentally when you should be pushing to get closer versus when you feel like it may not be safe? Well, I mean, no photos is, risk, is worth your, uh, your life. Yeah. And therefore... Um, you have to take calculating risks in terms of, is this picture worth taking? If I'm going to cross that street and maybe get killed by a sniper on the way, right. is it worth it? Now, every war reporter, or especially photojournalist, especially photographers, uh, have different levels in terms of their abilities to operate and take these risks. But if you want to take good pictures, it's true, you do have to get closer. And that's, you know, many would agree with that. While a reporter writes can be further behind the line and just get information and gather it, the photographer and the cameraman, they have to be on site to get the images. And if there is combat, combat is kind of like the, the tip of the spear because you have wars made different things from covering you know, refugee camps to destructions, things or maybe things that happened mm -hmm. a bit in the, in the past. But when you're in combat, that's the ultimate version of war because you're in it when it's actually forming and happening. And then, of course, it's the most dangerous, and this is really then you can get the feel of it. But it doesn't mean that's where you'll get the best pictures. Right. No. Well, it was interesting reading the book. I mean, it seems like <clears throat> I came away thinking you were more a student of history and war than a, a student of photography even. Is that a fair characterization? It, no, it is. And I've always been very straightforward about that publicly. Uh, most photographers will tell you I want the, the story to be told. I have a lot more, um, a, a very different uh, approach and partially because I was raised differently in the sense that uh, history has always been a very strong sense and have been shaped intellectually. And photography is the medium that allowed me to experience historical moments and what better ways to experience history than conflict because wars actually shape nations. And as a European, that's very true. Right. And th that's important. And photography allowed me to experience it. It turns out I could take a good picture and I made... I've had a very good career doing that. Do I consider myself purely as a photographer? I do not. I mean, that's part of it. It's part of the mosaic. But there's also a version of me which is I want to experience these historical moments and bring it to me first mm -hmm. and live in and become that person and then expand from that experience to others and say, this is why history is tragic and we have to remember that. Right, right. So <clears throat> some of you could sort of walk us through the sequence of events that sort of led to your capture. You entered through Lebanon, I believe? Yes. Um, so you, to go to Syria, you had different ways. Uh, Turkey was the most common because it was safer right. and uh, just easier to be smuggled through the lines and the borders and, and go into the rebel zones. L uh, Lebanon is trickier because Lebanon is controlled mostly by Hezbollah and dealing with them it's not that much better than dealing <laughs> right. with Islamists on the other side right. so they're also pretty tough and very well organized and very well trained and um, 
But I decided to go through Lebanon because I wanted to do something a bit different and cover an area that wasn't covered as much. Mm-hmm. And I had good contacts in Lebanon, so I put two to two together, and my decision was made. So, you know, you wrote the people who ultimately captured you and were holding you were under the umbrella of the Free Syrian Army. How did you figure that out? How did they actually take you? Well, I knew where I was going at first, before I was kidnapped. I mean, when I was in Lebanon, right. so I knew the... FSA, Free Syrian Army, uh, was more or less in control of the, the area in the Kalamun Mountains. And knowing that, you, you kind of know who you might be dealing with, even though you know the, the rebel groups are very separated and they have different uh, understanding of how they should be fighting this war. But uh, I was smuggled from Lebanon in a town called Arsal, which at the, ta- at the time, in, and that's a small town in northern mm-hmm. Lebanon, it was controlled by uh, pro-FSA groups, let's just put it that way. Pro-rebel groups. Yeah, who were anti-Bashar al-Assad, right. mostly. And they were served by Hezbollah, mostly. So you go through, and then I, w- I got into this town called Yabrut, which is, at the time, the big hub they controlled. The rebels, that is. And I was there, and I was covering the fighting from there, and that was my base of operation. Right. You're very clear about how terrifying this was. Immediately, the, there were mock executions. They were firing a pistol right next to your head. I mean, in that moment, did you think, this is it? I'm not coming back from this trip? Not always. Uh, it's very strange. Uh, I would say you do not think that terrible things are going to happen to you. And maybe that's a sense of survival. I'm not yeah. sure. So if you're being executed or mock executions, like you say, which is the right term, you don't think it's going to happen. And partially because I was covering the war from their side and you're trying to be rational. So you're trying to rationalize everything and you say, well, wait a minute, I'm covering your side. I'm risking my life. I'm right. telling you a story, but you're still going after me. That doesn't make sense. Right. Obviously, rules of, of, in war don't apply. Log- logic has a different <laughs> yeah. meaning. Right. But you also try to reassure yourself. So there's a lot of psychological work you're doing on yourself at the time. Yeah, I can only imagine. So an uh, interesting sort of footnote or side note is you you were able to get into Syria because of the help of Fixer. And I bet that's a term people listening haven't necessarily heard before. But they are critical for a war correspondent, really for any foreign correspondent. If you're in China reporting for the New York Times, you probably have a Fixer who can connect you with the right people and translate and do all the things you need. In your book, you have a description of a Fixer that I love. You said, you call them, quote, sort of a cross between a foster brother and Virgil leading Dante through the various circles of Inferno. What did you mean by that? Who are these people? Like, what did they do for you? Well, it's that's because they do everything for you. Okay. So they you know, they fix things for you from translating to uh, you need a bathroom, whatever you might need. So you're kind of like, it's kind of like a parent, <laughs> and but who has uh, your life in their hands. And they also, more importantly, have contacts mm-hmm. who allow you to go be in, with a specific rebel group. So they'll facilitate these connections. That's the most important thing. Mm-hmm. Also, they know the, la- the law of the land very well. They know where to go. So they supply their overall thing. And they're very crucial to, to our work. You're very right. They're crucial. Yeah. How do you find a good fixer from a bad fixer? I, I assume there's no fixer Yelp reviews or like... There should know, be. There should be. That's like, a good idea, actually. Maybe yeah. we should start doing we, that. I think we just invented a business. Yeah, I'm telling anybody. Five stars go. Two <laughs> yeah. stars is no worth No good. <laughs> so how'd you find this guy? Like, did it ever seem just crazy to you that you're putting your life in the hands of someone you maybe just met? 
No, it's a very good question. You don't just meet people. Uh, you prepare weeks ahead. I mean, you do prepare your trip. Or if you don't have that much time, you can ask other journalists. Even though in my profession, it's very competitive, like right. any profession, but same for us. And we would still help each other. If anybody tells me you have a good guy on the ground, I would. doesn't matter who, he's, who he is, what agency, wh whoever he works for, I would help him because that's a question of safety and mm -hmm. that's just the right thing to do. So uh, in this case, I, was, I had two fixes. The first one was a good one. That was through my contacts in Lebanon. And the second one, I decided to trust while I was on site to go to another area where they were fighting. And I believe that's him who facilitated my kidnapping. Uh, but, you know, you you make mistakes. I mean, I've been covering wars for 15 years, and you can still make mistakes. Like oh, absolutely. That. I'm honestly amazed that it works out the right way more often than not in some of these yeah. places, given what you were saying earlier about the enormous revenue you can make from kidnapping for ransom. No, it's true. Uh, but Syria was a... But the Middle East in general is tricky as a Westerner. always has been. That's nothing new. It's worse now, however. And it's tough because there's... Um, Fixers are, you know, they're there for the money, of course. But uh, like you say, there is always a middleman that plays a role in terms of the kidnapping when it comes to renegotiations to try to get you out. Everybody takes a cut. It's just pure and simple business. So basically, when you're kidnapped, you become merchandise. You're not so much a human being anymore. Right. And that's exactly what I tried to, to portray in a book where I try yeah. to be more humane and therefore have a better condition. Yeah, I mean, you know, you describe in, in pretty brutal detail <clears throat> the physical and, and psychological torture your captors put you through. There were beatings. One guy broke two of your ribs, the mock executions we discussed. But it did seem like your relationship evolved over time. You were able to earn their trust, maybe make some of them like you and sort of like seek out your company. How did that happen? It's a good question. Um, well, my mother raised me in a specific way that allowed me to be very resilient to things. And I believe that that was very helpful, number one. Number two, it was always a struggle. I had two different personalities in me at the time. One was like, I just want to go out and kill them. And I had opportunities to do so. Right. Just take a machine gun. I can use them, no problem. And right. just take these guys out. That was... For those listening, you're a pretty big guy. You nearly <laughs> went to the Olympics for swimming, so you could, you know, I, I, have the upper hand at times. Right, but then I would have gone killed right after <laughs> okay. by taking a few guys out. But So that's partially a fantasy that you have. Right. But then you really have to pull yourself back together and be like, this is not what you're going, you should be doing. And, of course, one of the, the many things that I did is to make sure that they would like me. So I spent a lot of time being very nice to them, but not in a hypocrite, more like uh, trying to help them with things. And, right. you know, they would be curious about certain things and just automatically jump in, in that and just give them all the details they want right. in order to um, to be curious about my life back home. And obviously the base subject is women. Right. As any places at any time on the planet and <laughs> amongst men, that is. And, uh and that was always a very a big curiosity for them, especially for the young ones yeah. who are all virgins, obviously. So if you're able to exploit these cracks, and then you go right in these cracks, and you can expand, and just then the the you you hope that they might forget about your conditions right. of being kidnapped for an hour or two, and that's right. helpful. Right. Yeah. I mean, what you endured is in no way funny, but the, some of the scenes you described are 
kind of just bizarre. It was almost like proximity and boredom just drove everybody crazy. You you taught one captor how to dance to J-Lo and Pitbull. You had to explain to another what foreplay was by demonstrating with a pillow after yeah. he demanded you do so. Yeah. You taught another guy how to swim. Could you relax in those moments or were you always just a captive terrified? It's interesting. These moments you describe, you do feel free for a minute and uh, you automatically made it a survival thing. I'm not sure where your brain rewires itself almost and then you almost have, like, have a, like a good time. And uh, when it came to the swimming, uh, when I was in the pool the first time and they filled it up, uh, yeah, I really felt like I was almost in the summer camp because the weather was incredible. Bombs were dropping constantly, <laughs> but it was a very nice weather. And you're in the pool and you're swimming. It's a very odd moment. It's almost yeah. surreal. You had to teach what sounded like the biggest, fattest, hairiest guy how to swim. When when he first got in the pool, he just sort of sank like a rock, right? Yeah, he was a warlord, and apparently he felt like he needed to improve some skills <laughs> with swimming, and he didn't know how to swim. So, yeah, he started sinking right there, so I grabbed him, and then... And, I, and I've been playing water polo for years, so I just tread water really well. So I just like kind of holding him. Yeah, he's not a very attractive guy to look <laughs> at with swim trunks. Anyway, but everybody was making fun of him because, you know, he's a warlord and he's in a very compromising <laughs> position ultimately. And yeah, and by the end he could swim. I never fully understood why he wanted to do that. But when they heard I was, uh, I swam because I would talk about it. I think they saw this as something very strange somehow because no one really learns how to swim in that mm-hmm. part of the world. It just yeah. doesn't happen. So I think they were curious. And when they saw me swim, because there was the first time when I got in that pool two days before, and then that's probably how, how it happened. Pod Save the World is brought to you by the UN Refugee Agency. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. Live life at your pace. Click the banner or go to visitwilliamsburg.com to discover how. Because here in Williamsburg, life moves at one pace, yours. Here, our waters are splashing and rejuvenating. Our history is for seeing and experiencing. Our theme parks are for riding and sometimes flying. And our great outdoors are yours for exploring and restoring. It's all waiting for you in Williamsburg. Book your trip today and live life at your pace. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you do if you had an extra hour in your day? Oh man, what would I do? Sleep would be nice. Yeah, yeah. Hang out with my daughter. I don't know. Take a nap, read a book. No, I wouldn't do a book. Listen, I wish I would pick a book. Yeah, but uh, listen, we all wish we had another hour in a day. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Whoa. 
My therapist is trying to get me to be still for five minutes a day. So much harder than it sounds. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's too many videos to see. There will be a podcast in my ear. The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash crookedworld. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash crookedworld. You know, in the book, you managed to remain remarkably calm. It's like you almost seemed like you had some techniques to do so, like not thinking about home, not daydreaming about an ex-girlfriend or family necessarily, like staying in the moment. Was that something you had figured out earlier in life or did you just kind of decide in that moment, this is how I'm going to make it through this? Nothing can ever prepare you for being kidnapped. It's like experience war, uh, uh, let's say a fight, fight the first time. You're curious about it, so you, you know, it sounds romantic and sexy and then it happens and then you really know if this is for you or not. When it happened to me in 2004, my first big firefight, then I knew this was, I was meant for that. It was built in me. Where were you in, in this uh, firefight? It was in uh, the Republic of Georgia, and it was probably August or September 2004. And I was very drunk, and uh, because <laughs> they, they were going on assault, drinking vodka heavily, and they're like, here, have some too, it'll be good for you. And it does remove a lot of your inhibitions, as it would if you, I guess, if you're at a bar and want to talk to <laughs> yeah, a woman, especially yeah, if you're absolutely. drunk. But so you, you go and there's bullets, you know, going around and you're drunk, which is very stupid because you're being careless. Anyway, I did that. And uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the other thing that would have driven me insane, I mean, you said a minute ago, you don't know why this guy wanted to learn to swim, but he did. It didn't make any sense. It seemed like nothing they did made sense. They moved you from one place to another. They brought in people who told you you'd be let go and they were full of shit. You know, that would happen time and time again. Like that irrationality of it all. <laughs> would make me crazy it's because you have to reapply yourself in the context of being in a war zone so if you're home then these lies that you're mentioning yeah it doesn't compute well but however if you're in the in the combat zone then everything changes mm -hmm. and even if you're a nice guy and you're covering their side therefore you're kind of taking their side in essence and they're still going after you and therefore they're doing bad publicity because I'm, I'm a well-known international shooter. So this would come out eventually, and it did right. when I was released. It really makes the Syrian re rebellion look very bad. And a lot of people started, and then James Foley was killed. So, yeah. But to them, it doesn't matter. It, mm -hmm. The war effort is what matters the most. Mm. Finally, you, know, you were moved several times. There were false promises, like I mentioned. Finally, a rich Syrian connected to the government essentially bought your freedom. You know, do you have a sense of why he did that, what this guy maybe got out of getting you out of captivity? It's, it was all very political. Originally, he was looking for two other French journalists who had been kidnapped, and he was kind of spitting in a wrong hole. So my luck was incredible because he ended up getting in contact with the rebel group who had me, and they, he said, well, I'm looking for these two guys. Do you have them? It's like, no, we don't, but we have this guy. <laughs> it's, like, it's, it's like car shopping. It yeah, was, it was like, bizarre. It was, yeah, exactly. What do you want? <laughs> And he's like, well, who is he? He's like, well, it's him. He's like, okay. So he sent someone to film me so he would see my, you know, see what I look like to make sure it wasn't the same. Mm -hmm. 
And then they started negotiating money. But the reason why he did this is because a lot of powerful Syrian business people and business politicians, and often it's the same, mm -hmm. they do both, are in um, some sort of a, a blacklist, which was created by the European Union and the right. United States. Sanctions probably. Yeah, say, right. They freeze your assets. You can't travel abroad. That right, So it, right. it really, it's stringent because a lot of these people have foreign businesses and they can't. And he did in Canada. So he's trying to get out of that list by showing goodwill, by paying a lot of money to release a foreign entity and then hopefully mm -hmm. getting out of that list. Interesting. That's a, funny that he would cook up that route to, to get off a sanction list. But hey, whatever works. It, it's, yeah, it's one way to do it. It kind of worked in the beginning for him, then it didn't because governments don't like to be blackmailed. Usually they don't really yeah. do well with that. <laughs> yeah. Did you think that ransom was always the captor's goal and they were just sort of waiting around for the best offer? When I would ask why I'm here, they would always tell me the same thing. They say, you can't get out because you're surrounded. We are surrounded by Hezbollah uh, troops, which was true, actually. We're being, the front was getting close. I mean, you could feel the wars getting worse and worse where we were. But so they would actually lie uh, always and always tell me that I wasn't kidnapped. They would never tell me you're kidnapped. They always say you're here on your free will, but you know it's not true. But it does make you feel better when you hear that. And they're very smart. They know that. So it's like, oh, so it's okay. But you're not being rational yourself. I knew that I was being kidnapped because it's, you know, it's obvious. But you don't think right. So when yeah. they tell you you're not kidnapped, you're like, okay, that's okay. I'm okay. I'm going to yeah. be fine. I'm going to live. Yeah. So finally, this individual bought your freedom. They took you to another house for, I believe, 10 days that was larger, a little more comfortable. Uh, no, no. What happened is I was smuggled back to Damascus, mm -hmm. and then they smuggled me. It was kind of crazy, but they got me to Damascus, and then he got nervous because it's what he did it was, you know, you're dealing with the rebels, so you never know, with the Bashar government. So he smuggled me back into Lebanon 24 hours later, and then he left after the border, and then I went to Beirut with two of his men, and he has, had this incredible apartment on, overlooking the marina of, of Beirut. And I knew Beirut well, so I knew where I was, and I, I escaped there and ended up at the French embassy. Yeah, so you managed to find a hard line, and you made a call, had someone yeah. call you back, and all of a sudden, you know, they're telling you, run 100 yards down the street to a hotel, I believe? Yeah, there was a Four Seasons very nearby, <laughs> and I knew the area because right. I'd been there, so I just walked around, and <laughs> and I'm just waiting like this in front of the hotel, and this car shows up, and it's the French police, and they pick me up, and they drive me to the embassy. You described the anxiety of waiting for release as a fishbone in your throat. When did you finally spit the fishbone out and sort of feel okay? Not till the next day, because I remember I had a, a major panic attack, which I've never had before, and I probably will never have that again. When I woke up the next morning at the embassy, in this beautiful room, my brain didn't realize that I was free. So I spent about half an hour in utter panic, trying to f remember w where I was. Now, you see where you are, but it's weird. Your brain yeah. was like, could not connect how it felt or where you were. So f I had no idea where I was, like completely lost. Wow. And then it kicks back in, and then I was fine. I can't even imagine. So finally, you're out after enduring the hell of 81 days of captivity. But all that time, your parents are dealing with a, a totally different kind of hell, right? This fear and uncertainty about your situation, worrying about you. Unfortunately, sometimes the way governments interact with families make things worse. They increase that anxiety. They have terrible bedside manner, for lack of a better term, in terms of 
communicating with people. The United States refuses to pay ransoms. Other governments like France will publicly deny that they pay, but it's, it's clear that they do. It's also difficult for families like yours to know who to talk to in the government. You talk in the book about how it's bizarre that the FBI is handling these cases because they are in charge of missing persons. And But why isn't the State Department, right? It was this convoluted system. In fact, some American families were told they could be arrested if they talked about paying for ransom. So it was yeah, a like Jim Foley's family. Yeah, totally fucked parents. up yeah. system. The Obama administration ended up conducting a big review of hostage policy and, and reforming it in 2015. We can get into that more. But uh, first thing I want to ask is, like, how did your family and friends deal with those days? Like, what sort of things practically were they working on to try to get you home? Well, I got bits and pieces of information after, obviously, I came home. And oh, even I, recently, I found out some stuff I didn't know. My parents, uh, my mother lives in Mexico. My father lives in Maine. But... Uh, they had this policy, if I, if I can say, uh, mm-hmm. to keep it secret. Right. Obviously, the governments would agree with that. So that's the way they want it. Some other families want to make it public. Maybe right. if such a long time has passed, it's time to do that. But they had a mixed feeling. Dealing with the French government went quite well, uh, I think. Uh, it, it went well. It's just the way it's set up, with the interaction, everything is different. And dealing with the U.S. government didn't go well. Now... To be fair to the the federal government, it's a huge organization and it's a huge country and dealing with one individual, it's perhaps more difficult in terms of technicalities, how things are constructed. In Europe, France is a much smaller nation, it's less people, so it's, uh, you can have a closer relationship with the government in that sense. Now, you're right, the Obama administration, they tried to mend the relationship between the DOJ, for example, and the and, uh, and the families, because families were very upset. Yeah. And now a question about money. There's always money involved. Um, often what could happen is uh, the United States can use a third party or a third party in terms of a country or an individual to pay. But usually there's money involved. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated.
I think you were probably uh, a little too fair a minute ago to the U.S. government. So some of the reforms they made was basically, you know, we're not going to abandon you. We're going to stand by them. They created a hostage group to coordinate sure. all the disparate yep. parts of government. So they were talking to the right people. And, you know, they had to stop needlessly threatening families and telling them, hey, if you negotiate with a terrorist group, you could go to prison. That is crazy. I think you, they, you wouldn't, they wouldn't send you to jail. They might sue you. They never that, have. Yeah, but yeah, it, it's, to threaten it's that. a threat. I, the reason why I'm being nice to the federal government, and trust me, it doesn't <laughs> happen all the time because it's, it's a heavy structure and it's cumbersome, but the FBI was very good to me. Got it. Uh, when I came back and right. they helped me get money, there was funds. There's uh, to replace some of the equipment. Yeah, things. and I got uh, quite a bit of money and more than I needed actually to replace things, and I kept good relations with the FBI and and so that kept uh, that was well. So during not so good, but after I, I met some good agents That's and they good. were very helpful. Yeah, I mean you talked about <clears throat> these endless debriefings that happened after you got back. There were the French authorities, there were the FBI. Am I debriefing you as we speak, or is this like was this cathartic writing the book, and now it's a little easier to dig into it? Like I was saying earlier in the interview, I um, I've always been very resilient, so it could backfire for some things. Not get into that, but um, it was cathartic. And one of the things that was very cathartic for me is going back to war. Mm -hmm. And when I was kind of getting restless and I was in the U.S., I was shooting, but I was bored and I needed something extra to go back to my original positioning. So when the war in the Ukraine started, then I was like, that's it. I packed my bag. I went to Paris. They're my best friend's house. Called a buddy of mine who's a, a famous reporter in Paris. He's an older gentleman. He's in his 50s now. And we just went to Kiev and we covered the war for two years. Yeah, I mean, you, you talk about <laughs> your parents, your poor parents, man. You get back and they're like, all right, we're looking forward to plan B. Like, you want to teach? What's your next thing? Since then, I counted that you've been to Cairo during the revolution, yeah. Ukraine on the Maidan during the revolution, Mosul, yeah. very safe place in 2017. So what drew you back? Like, can you just not shake the need to be in these places? It's a question that's being asked to me, and every time I say the same thing, it's a, it's a good, it's a legitimate question, obviously, and it's kind of, it's like a sickness. That's usually the word that I use, and again, I'm always very uh, realistic when it comes to that, and we all have that bug. I mean, mm -hmm. the guys who do this, so soldiers have it too. Yeah. Uh, you would have soldiers coming back from the front on leave. And to see their family and not have that connection with that family. And the only thing they want to do is go back. You right. know, right. It's just kind of the same. It's not entirely because we're not working as in a unit. But it's similar because once you have the, the war drug in your bloodstream, it's very hard to shake. And, uh, and even though you know that it's, it's not healthy. Yeah. As a photographer, I mean, there are these iconic photos that can, I think, summarize or uh, a war in a better than any reporting can. Right. There's horrifying images of a, a naked little girl who had just been napalmed in Vietnam, I think like catalyzed opposition to Vietnam. There's the photo of Ilan Kurdi lying dead on the beach, uh, sure. a, a little Syrian boy. I mean, do you think about those images and the political impact as part of your job when you're in these places? It's not the primary thing. I know my work's going to get well published, so that's a direct consequence of that. Now, when it comes to specific photos that were uh, instrumental in shaping uh, my, my craft, mm -hmm. uh, obviously, and it's true for everybody, there are a couple of photographers, World War II shooters, who were operating on the Russian front, on both the German and the Russian side. Mm -hmm. 
And I found those very appealing because they're rare and they're not very well known. So I'm always looking for something that's a bit off the beaten path, if I can say. And they're incredible work. And the atrocity of that conflict just makes it even more so. I try to look for something that's a little, little different. Got it. You, you're clear, honest in the book that you get booked on TV to talk about Syria policy. And you're like, I'm, you know, I had this situation. I'm not like a policy expert. I'm certainly not either. But you also said, you know, that you felt like. Assad's regime, as awful as it is, was the only thing keeping the country from devolving into total chaos. Do you still feel that way sort of a couple years later? And do you have a sense of like what might be a best case scenario for Syria at this point? No, but uh, I, I'm, I'm doing my second trip to Syria. And this was when the war started in the beginning of spring 2012. And we were embedded with rebels in northern Syria, a very difficult trip. And already you had a feeling these guys were being, you know, more and more Islamic. And War does that also, and then more foreigners came in. And I talked to CNN, I was on assignment with them, that be careful because I think this is going to be, and it turned out to be true. Of course, the regime of Assad is, it's not a good regime. It's torturing is their specialty. We all know that. And yeah. However, it is difficult for the United States to sometimes have the higher moral ground because we have supported some of these people. And when it doesn't suit our national interests, we switch sides. And we do that all the time. That's nothing new. I agree with you. But when you add on top of that to have a, a higher moral ground, it, it make, doesn't make it as credible. I think trying to get rid of it was a terrible thing. Six to 800,000 people have died. Yeah. Means are displaced. The country is in complete ruin. Was it worth it? No. Yeah. So, and look at Libya. Libya is the other great example. Gaddafi, yeah, he was crazy, but... You could talk to him still, and he held it together. Libya is a complete chaos, and now all the mass migration to Europe is coming through here. Yeah, They had a deal with Gaddafi to stop that, and he, that was the deal. Yeah. And now getting rid of him just unlocked it. So they're very stupid um, policies. Yeah. Jonathan Opry, thank you so much for joining me today. And the book is The Shattered Lens, A War Photographer's True Story of Captivity and Survival in Syria. We barely got into the harrowing story of those 81 days, so everyone should buy it and read it. And uh, thanks for joining me. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to Pod Save the World. If you like the show, please rate and review us in the iTunes store. It means a lot to me, and it helps the show. Talk to you next week. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.